it's good to see your faces today. <laughs> More. Nancy and Jim, what are you doing over there? You've been sitting over here for 20 years or more. 30 years. Well, we hadn't been here 30 years, but almost. What's going on? Oh, okay. Oh, I see. I got it. I got it. Okay. I just, boy, I was. I, I, that, that's the amen corner over there. It, and it, it moved. Uh, it's really good to have a guest. So I don't try to point out everybody that's visiting uh, all the time, but very, we have a very special guest today. It surprised me with a visit. And as some of you know, I've talked about uh, John 17, 23, and a group I've been in for, I don't know, 14 or 15 years. I've been in the same group, and it's just been such a blessing to my life to be a part of those guys. And, and uh, every two weeks we meet, and I live in an accountability relationship with those three other pastors. And so uh, we're, we're really blessed today to have the CEO of that ministry here, Sean Bowen. Sean, would you stand, and your wife and daughter, would you guys stand? And uh, they're doing a great job blessing pastors all over New England, and, uh, and we need a lot of help, believe me. It's, uh, <laughs> um, so we're grateful for that. Um, also, it's good to see some of you back uh, Good to see you, buddy, and good to see some of you back, and I know that some will feel more released to come now that, uh, that uh, some, guide, some restrictions are being lifted, and we're very, isn't it, let's just stop and give the Lord thanks that it feels like we're coming out of this pandemic, and I just want to stop and say thank you, Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for getting us through this last 14 months, Lord, that have been so difficult and so stressful for everybody in this room, every pastor and every church. Thank you, God, for getting us through it. Now bless us as we transition. Keep us at peace with one another. Keep us safe. And God, we pray, we just ask humbly that you would, you would suppress any outbreak of COVID-19 in our community and in the nation and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, we're in the part three of the series, Rediscovering God. And today we're talking about, uh, we're talking about knowing God with your heart. Uh, I probably should tell you this sermon um, maybe a little different because uh, Sherry calls me at the office, I think it was Tuesday, and said the closing date on our house, which we thought was June the 8th, has been moved to June the 4th. You better get home right now. <laughs> so all week long I've been packing and moving. I've carried a legal pad around with me and made little notes as I go along. I thought about this sermon would come to me and I got down. So so, by the way, we, we are moving, we bought the blue house in front of the blessing barn. So we're moving there, and the greenhouse is a part of that whole thing, as a part of the property, so we, that's, that's us now. And, by the way, if you ever have any questions about church and property and that kind of stuff, please ask me, because i tell you why it's important, and I didn't realize it mattered so much, so a few months ago, a former member of this church came by the blessing barn and in a conversation we found out that he thought that Sherry and I owned all these properties. All these properties we've been buying, you know, downtown and Northbridge, that somehow we own them. And that, that's probably why he's a former member. <laughs> so uh, if you ever have any questions about anything, uh, you know, conflict of interest type stuff, just 
Everybody, every one of you in this room have my cell phone number. You know that, right? Everybody has my cell phone number. So just call my cell phone and say, what up, pastor? And I'll tell you what's going on. You say, well, I don't want to offend you by acting like I'm suspicious. No, that doesn't, it won't offend me. It does offend me when you go talk to somebody else. That does bother me. When you go ask somebody else, when you can ask me, I will tell you what's going on. If you don't like my answer, then we'll go get somebody else. We'll go get the members. You, you can talk to the board of trustees and all that, and you can ask it. But, but, but would you just ask me if you, if you think Sherry and I are up to something nefarious and we're, we're pulling the wool over your eyes and we're getting rich off of you? Uh, please ask me, and I will tell you the truth as best I can. Okay? Um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. Let's get into this. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart, circle heart, because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. He's talking about the head now, the creator. He's looking at the creation. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he might empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your circle hearts as you trust in him. <clears throat> your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as in all God's people should, how wide, how long, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now, the last two sermons have been about the reason to put your faith in God. We started with the creation, the, uh, the, the, the created earth and the complexities of the creation of the, of the solar system and our bodies. And then last week we talked about the moral code and the how the evidence of the moral code lets us know that there, that, that there has to be a God, that uh, it, as Dostoevsky said, without God everything is permissible. And we talked about that. But, but you know, most of us did not come to faith by studying uh, the solar system. <laughs> most of us did not come to faith in Christ by studying the complexities of the human bodies. Most of us came to Christ through revelation, not reason. Most of us came to Christ through our hearts, not our mind. We use the mind, you know, we use the mind for the little stuff. We use the mind to research and buy vacuum cleaners. We use the mind to decide which laptop we're going to buy, which car we're going to buy, or which set of golf clubs we're going to buy. But revelation and the heart is what we use to decide who we're going to marry. <laughs> it's, that's what we use. We probably use to decide which church we're going to attend. And more importantly, we use the heart to decide whether we're going to believe in God. Ultimately, the heart has to get involved. Now, the heart is, the, what is the heart? It's the seat of affections. The heart is the center of your affections and the seat of your emotions. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, No eye has seen nor ear heard. In other words, you can't, you can't come to these, some of these conclusions through, the, the, through the, the plausibility structure, as they, say, as they call it, called science. 
You can't come to, to some, so you can't come to the most important knowledge in life with a telescope or a microscope. No eye has seen or ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, but it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit, for his Spirit searcheth out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote the book Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, said the only true way to listen is with your ears and with your heart. He goes on to say, we live in a world that assumes that the quality of a decision is directly related to the time and effort that went into making it. We believe that we're always better off gathering as much information as possible and depending and as much time as possible on deliberation. Decisions made very quickly, he says, can be every bit as good as decisions made cautiously and deliberately. He goes on to say, in another quote, we need to respect the fact that it is possible to know without knowing why we know. And accept that sometimes we're better off that way. I always have said it this way for years. We just know that we know that we know that we know. And that's how we know we know. <laughs> I've, we've all experienced this, right? I've, I remember uh, back in 1988, I flew up here to New England to check out the little church on Grant Street. Seven people were attending the little church on Grand Street in Milford. That was Bethany Assemblies of God Church. And I remember walking into that room with those seven people, and the inner voice, my heart said these words, you're home. I called Sherry. Oh, she was in Florida. See, some of you don't think I'm the boss. <laughs> See, I don't know where that comes from. But some of you just don't think I'm the boss. But I want you to know that was one day when I, when I, when I called the shots. <laughs> I called Sherry on the phone. I said, we're home. This is where we're supposed to be. She said, fine, no problem, of course. That's what she always says when I tell her what we're going to do. <laughs> when I walked into the forum building downtown, met the pastor who was, was pastor of that building, I looked around, my heart said, buy this. I turned to them and said, let's sign the purchase and sell agreement. Of course, I went through the process. We ran it by the Board of Trustees. We ran it by you as a congregation. You had to vote on it. We followed it. I didn't ignore the, you don't have to ignore the process in order to use your heart. But you better use your heart or you're going to miss a lot of great opportunities. Because they're going to be gone by the time you do all your research. And I'm not against research. We're, we're gonna, we're, we'll balance this out. It's going to sound very out of balance in the beginning. I'll try to bring some balance by the end. I remember one day uh, walking. Where our, offices, our offices have been everywhere in this building. But we were right over here in the office. I remember walking by the secretary's desk. And she says to me, I got this thing called 40 Days of Purpose. I don't know if you're interested in it. Rick Warren. And my heart said, do it. I didn't, I didn't appoint a, a committee to study it. I didn't go ask anybody else what it is. I'm not saying I shouldn't do that, by the way. I'm not saying that you always have to act like once, but once in a while you you got to do what Malcolm Gladwell says. You just got to blink. That's what we're supposed to do. And I said, Let, you know, I, I took a look at the paper. I said, we're going to do this. And this was in uh, in July. We did the campaign in October. Our our Wednesday night attendance was about 70. We began to run 300 in small groups. During that campaign, we don't run that many, quite that many now, but we were running 300 small groups, 
At the end of it, we baptized, this is, this is, this is cool. At the end of it, we baptized 40 people after 40 days of purpose. This was a campaign that Rick Warren did. And I, I could take you through so many things in my life where my heart made the decision. I, speaking of Sherry, <laughs> she came down to her grandma's wedding, and I met her at the wedding. I invited her out for coffee afterward. I went home and said to God, that's who I'm going to marry. I didn't do any research. <laughs> well, I did, but... Uh, no. <laughs> Not scientific research, right? <laughs> in fact, Malcolm Gladwell tells a great story in his book, uh, Blank. He talks about these people in a, in, a, in a New York City, in a museum there, did, did thousands of hours of research on this Egyptian artifact and determined this Egyptian artifact was, was, was real and bona fide and not a fake. And they, they paid thousands and thousands of dollars for it. They brought it to New York. A woman who was also a researcher for it walked into the museum after they had it in place and everybody's come to look at it. She walks up to it, takes one, looks at it, takes one look at it and says, it's a fake. And it was a fake. Because she knew how to listen to her heart. Here's the deal, guys. Only the heart can measure God's love. Ephesians 3.17, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. Only your heart can start to measure God's love. And then in verse chapter 1, verse 17, keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, I keep asking, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Spirit of wisdom and revelation, not a telescope, not a microscope, not an MRI machine, but I give you the spirit of revelation that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of saints, and his uncomparably great power for us who believe. Now, some of us know God the way we know Tom Brady or LeBron James, by, by watching them play and reading their tweets. We don't know a person, though, until we laugh with them or we cry with them or we, we grip their hand regularly in greeting or embrace them in an emotional moment. You, you, you can know about, about God with a telescope or a microscope or by, by reading Frank Turek or Stephen Meyer or Norm Geisler or William, uh, uh, William Lane Craig or John Lennox or J. Warner Wallace or Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel or C.S. Lewis. But you can know about God by all those incredible authors. But you will never know God until you know him with your heart and with your soul and with your emotions and with your whole being. It's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that philosophers, not scientists, have shaped our culture. I said it's no coincidence that philosophers, philosophers like Nietzsche and Freud and, and, and psychologists, they have shaped our culture, not scientists. It's also no, no, no coincidence that marketing is most often about how a product makes you feel and how it would change your life rather than a quality analysis. They don't advertise toothpaste by giving you the chemical breakdown of toothpaste. They make you think you will get the girl if you brush your teeth with this product. I think about the Magi, I was thinking about this, and I think the ancient Magi who came to Jesus totally illustrated science and heart, mind and heart. 
They were astronomers. They were ancient astronomers. They were ancient scientists. So they knew how to use their minds. And they had studied the stars. And, and, and they had listened to prophecies about a star that would lead them to the king of the world. And they followed the star in the east by using science, by using the mind. But then when they saw Jesus, their heart got involved. When they met him, it became a thing of their heart. And God spoke to their heart and said, go back home a different route. God spoke to their heart, don't be messing around with the politician who wants to... He wants to exploit this situation and kill this baby. The Bible says, so, so it's okay to use, see, we're not, we're not dismissing science. We're not dismissing the mind. For since the creation of the world, the Bible says, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So God uses the stars. The firmaments declare his handiwork. We follow our hearts, not our minds. To God or away from God. We could rightly say the Magi found Jesus with their mind, but they made him king with their heart. Have you made Jesus king with your heart? I know that uh, the name Ravi Zacharias does not engender good feelings this morning because of the, the tremendous sin that we discovered he was involved in and the exploitation that he you know, and I don't know how to respond to that, but I, I, I heard his daughter speaking the other day, and, and she was very, very uh, humble and repentant about her father's behavior, who passed away, for those of you who don't know. But, but I, I heard something else in what she said, because I thought of it. Regardless of Ravi Zacharias' moral behavior, he was a brilliant defender of the faith. A brilliant apologist. Apologist, if you're not familiar with that word, it doesn't mean someone who apologizes for being a Christian. <laughs> Apologia, the, the word means to answer. They answer the, 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 the criticisms and, and they, they defend the faith. So, so she said under this famous apologist her whole life, and she's made this statement. Excuse me. She said, I became a Christian at a young age but it wasn't until 10 years ago that I came to believe that God loved me. Before that, my faith was head knowledge, and it was fear-based. It was at an event my dad was speaking at that I fully surrendered my life to God, putting aside my fear, and in that surrender, believing that he loved me. And in loving God in return, it has changed everything. That really touched me. Having a, having a science of apologetics, an apologist is really a, a scientist. That's what an apologist is. They're really a science. It's the science of scripture, the science of faith. All that apology, uh, apologetic, I should say, did not change her life. But when she realized that God loved her, and she loved God. And I, I keep thinking today, I'm speaking to somebody who hasn't, the faith has not gone from your head to your heart either. And I'm praying by the end of this sermon in a few minutes, remember what Malcolm Gladwell has taught us, that great decisions can be made in a second. And I'm believing that at the end of this message today, somebody in this room will make the decision, and several of you will make the decision to let the, to let the relationship with God 
Go from what you think to what you know. Hallelujah. There was a very famous uh, agnostic atheist back, uh, he lived from 1833 to 1899. His name was Robert Ingersoll, very famous agnostic. And he was a marvelous speaker. People would come and pack auditoriums to hear him speak. He was an attorney. Um, he was a political activist. And uh, most people believe that he arrived at his atheist, atheistic conclusions with his mind in scientific analysis. But, but, but this anecdote I'm about to share with you, against the backdrop of growing up as a pastor's son and watched his, fa- past, his father pastor being abused by Christians and being abused by churches, reveals otherwise. That he really didn't get to his atheism and his agnosticism with his mind. He really got there with his heart because this famous uh, agnostic attorney and statesman had a Christian aunt, or as we say, you New Englanders, you can tell I'm not a New Englander, aunt. We, in, in Texas, we can't differentiate between the little things that crawl around the ground and your, your dad's sister, you know. But uh, he had a Christian aunt who was a powerhouse as a political activist, but she was also a deeply devoted Christian. And, and one day, she received by mail a package that contained a copy of his book, An Attack on the Bible. On the flyleaf, in the flyleaf, were written these words. If all Christians had lived like Aunt Sarah, perhaps this book would never have been written. Wow. He reveals in that sentence that it wasn't science that led him away from God. It was his heart that got hurt by Christians that led him away from God. That, that's a little side message to us Christians to stop attacking each other because people are going to be lost to the kingdom of God because we do it. Amen? You, you think it's just innocent thing that we attack each other. But, but Jesus said the world will know that we are his disciples because of the love we have for one another. I'm telling you, we've missed in the church one of the greatest evangelism opportunities of all, which is just to love each other. I know you'd be terrified if I said, okay, after church today, we're going to go knock on doors and we're going to ask people, have you made Jesus Christ your personal Savior? I don't imagine I'd have more than two or three who would go along and you would just go along because you go, Pastor Phil wants me to do it, so I'll do it. But the rest of you would go to lunch, right? But uh, how about if you just love each other as an evangelistic tool, okay? That, that wasn't even my, my notes, man. That, some, some of the best stuff comes to me while I'm up here. <laughs> Paul described the love of Christ as too great to fully understand, completely surpassing knowledge. The psalmist wrote, Your steadfast, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. We say, I love you, I love you to the moon and back. Because we, we don't have words, there aren't words, there aren't scientific expressions for this. When your mind is blown, your heart takes over. Now, it's heart, what about this heart thing? Is it Is it infallible? Am I saying that every impression you feel in your heart, you should go with it? No, no. My second point today is heart knowing is flawed, but so is everything else. (laughs) 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says. James said, if anyone thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. You can deceive your heart. This person's religion is worthless. And then Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The heart of the children of man are full of evil and madness. <laughs> madness is in their hearts while they live. We've all had the foibles of the heart, haven't we? We've all, we've all really believed that God was telling us to do something. And it ended up being wrong. We've all, all of us have believed that God was telling us, hire that person. <laughs> and we hired them. And six months later, we know it wasn't God. <laughs> that we, we had too much Mexican food, you know. <laughs> too, too much pizza and went to bed. <laughs> the Bible says we see through a glass dark. When I was in the fourth grade, uh, we had moved to the little town of McKinney. And if you've been to McKinney lately, it's not a little town anymore. It went from 16,000 to 175,000. But when I was there as a little boy, it was 16,000. So one day my dad gets an opportunity to to buy a restaurant, a drive-in restaurant in uh, Irving, Texas. So we moved to the big metropolis of Irving, the suburb of Dallas. And so I go from this little school to this great big school, Irving, Texas. And I was a lost little boy. Fourth grade, I go to this brand new great big school. And we had, we, we had uh, 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 this um, uh, principal named uh, Mr. Claude Felter. And he looked like... Uh, he looked like uh, Mr. Wilson and Dennis the Menace, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. And uh, one day, a little boy in my class said that I stole his pencil. And I did not steal his pencil. I know to this day I didn't steal his pencil or borrow it or touch it or have anything to do with it. So I get marched down to the principal's office, and Mr. Claude Felter looks down at me and says to me, he asked me if I stole it. I said, I did not, Mr. Claude Felter. He said, I can tell by your eyes that you are lying. And I still resent that man for that. <laughs> no, we all get it wrong sometimes. We all blink and we shouldn't, we should keep our eyes open. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge makes us feel important, but love strengthens us. But, but before you get too sour on people who say they heard from God, and, and it doesn't work out to be from God. We, you know, we had some false prophecies in the last few months in election year. And we had these people prophesying that Trump was going to be elected and all, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and it didn't happen. But before you get too down on the voice of God, consider the absurdity of some past scientific and, and psychological beliefs that have been embraced by the majority. So if we're going to be fair, uh, here's one. Uh, I, I found this ad, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it, the, the guy that's responsible for all these ads is a guy named Eddie Bernays. Eddie Bernays invented marketing in America. Coincidentally, he was Sigmund Freud's nephew. So he took the psychological principle, and Freud believed... Uh, Freud got almost everything wrong, but one thing he got right is that humans are not rational. And that we, we do not make decisions from rationality, but we make decisions with our emotions. He got that right. And so Eddie Bernays is the guy who created these, all these ads. And, and you notice there's an attractive lady down in the corner with a cigarette. 
because the cigarette companies went to Eddie Bernays and they said to him, we, we, half of the country's not smoking. And because the women, it's not cool for a woman to smoke. It, was, it wasn't considered feminine for women to smoke. So we have to get women smoking. Oh, isn't that a great goal in life? <laughs> oh, here's another one. A fact. Science advances new data that may completely change your idea of cigarettes. And there again, we have the attractive women uh, all about smelling like smoke. She thought that would be great, to smell like cigarette smoke. Uh, what about this? How many of you have heard this? We only use 10% of our brains. Guess what? 90% of your brain is white matter, and it, all it does is support the neurons. Only 10% of your brain is capable of thinking, so of course you only use 10% of your brain. That's all you can use. <laughs> and what about this one? Eating sugar makes kids hyperactive. You know, that's, that's totally not true. Th this came from a sugar high theory in 1978 when one study found that kids with hyperkinesis, uh, which is a hyperactive disorder, had low blood sugar, which weirdly enough can be a sign of eating too much sugar. But in 1994 study, they, 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 fed a, they fed a bunch of five to seven-year-olds placebos. In other words, it wasn't really sugar. What a bummer if you're a five to seven-year-old and you get a placebo instead of a Snickers bar. I mean, what a, what a cruel thing to do to kids. But all the mothers, even though they got a placebo, all the mothers swore their kids were more hyperactive after they ate the placebo, right? Uh, what about, let's go back, let's pick on uh, Uncle Siggy again, Freud. He developed a theory that, of human development that everybody has dismissed today. But it was believed for 50 or 60 years, and I can't even talk about it in a mixed crowd. I can't talk about Sigmund Freud's theory of human development. It's just too gross to even talk about, in, in, especially in mixed company. But, uh, but here's, here's something I can talk about, that Freud believed that women will always have an underdeveloped superego. And I don't want to explain superego, but you can look it up. That women will always have an underdeveloped superego and thus remain morally inferior to men. People believe that for years. And if you go back, go to your computer and type in Google sexist ads and go to images and see the advertisements that used to, you know, there's this one with a woman with a ketchup bottle. Have you seen that? A woman's holding a ketchup bottle, and the ad says, even a woman can open it. <laughs> that advertisement was all fed by the theories of, Sig of Sigmund Freud that for years people worshipped as a god. He invented psychology, right? And he was wrong about almost everything. So don't feel so bad that once in a while you think God spoke to you, and you found out he didn't. Ephesians 3.16, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. This is not about trusting your heart. It's about trusting Jesus. I said, this is not about trusting your heart. It's about, trusting, it's about merging your heart with the heart of God. That's what we want to do here this morning. You know, a few days ago, uh, my daughter, Elise, uh, was working in the store in Charles Street in Boston. And a couple came in, 
got talking to her. The guy's a, a documentary filmmaker, and he makes films and, 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 and documentaries about good things that people are doing and good things that are happening and, and good discoveries and, and altruistic deeds that are being done by people. And the, 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 his wife actually is a, a writer. They're both from New York City. And his wife is a writer for Insider Magazine. And so they get talking, you know, uh, Elise does the thing when they walk in. Oh, you've been in our store before. Would you, do, you, do you know what we're, why we're here and what we do? And whatever she tells to see any story. And so those of you are here today, what we do, we have a store in Boston. And we, we provide housing for people who are getting medical care, for families. Families at Mass General that are getting cancer treatment, whatever. The families need a place to stay. Well, we provide an apartment for them with the funds from the store. So I'm just throwing that. That was a free uh, commercial break right there. Um, anyway, this couple, you know, they hear the CNE story and, and they leave. And if 20 minutes later they come back, they said, listen, we went and looked at your Instagram and we saw that you're singing songs about Jesus and the Lord. And we just want you to know we're Christians. And, and so, we, she, and here's what the guy said. And I, I went, at least told me, I said, text me that. I, I want to use that in my sermon Sunday morning. The guy said, your heart seems so big. It couldn't just be your heart alone. Isn't that, is that profound? Your heart seems so big, it couldn't just be your heart alone. The point of this message today is not to tell you that your heart is always right. The point of this message today is to tell you that Jesus is always right. And you need to get Jesus involved in your heart. You need to bring God. You need, you need to merge your heart with the heart of God. The Bible says King David, Psalmist David, was a man after God's own heart. So, let's close with this. Since the heart is necessary for knowing God, we must get our hearts right. The heart is the decider in chief in your life. That's the one thing, as I said earlier, Freud got that right. The fall has tainted the heart like everything else. The heart has its reasons, though, which reason knows nothing of, Blaise Pascal said. The heart is the decider in chief in your life. Every, great, every big decision in your life you will not make with your mind. You will make it with your heart. You will make it based on a strong urge, desire, or feeling. Heart knowing can transform you with the transcendent, or it can wreck you with the irrational if you don't get your heart right with God. Amen. Proverbs 4.20 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. That's huge, isn't it? Amen. The heart is, your heart is a giant magnet drawing you and the objects you're oriented to together. The heart is a magnet, a giant magnet. Some of us in this room probably, or at least in, in the world, have hearts that are oriented to pleasure and lust and leisure. Some of us have hearts that are oriented to power and control. Some of us have hearts that are oriented to significance and self-importance. Some of us have hearts that are oriented toward possessions and acquisitions. Some of us have hearts that are motivated toward the glory of God and love. Simon the Sorcerer was that individual that we read about in Acts chapter 8 that wanted to buy the power to give away the Holy Spirit and Simon Peter turns to him and rebukes him 
and says you can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. That's the question that we want to answer in these last few minutes of this sermon today. Is, our, is your heart right with God? Our hearts can be fearful, lazy, lustful. God doesn't demand sinless perfection, by the way. But he does demand a pure heart. The pure in heart will see God. God and, and a pure heart doesn't mean you're without any sin. A pure heart means you are motivated properly. It means your motivations are right. It means you want what God wants. The Bible teaches that humans are fundamentally lovers, not thinkers. St. <laughs> Augustine taught this, Jonathan Edwards, all the great theologians. Most of us in church history has taught that human beings who essentially love, we, we, are, we essentially love and desire. Our hearts set the course of our lives because our hearts are what do the loving and the desiring. Your heart is you. I said your heart is you. What you really want and what you really desire. David said, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. That's after he had committed terrible, terrible, scandalous sins. I don't recommend sinning, but sometimes it's the only way that some of us can realize that our hearts aren't right before God is when we do something really awful or stupid or foolish. And then we realize that our hearts weren't right. The heart is always the real issue, not the action. I don't believe we easily know when our hearts are headed in the right direction. Although we're saved by grace, getting your heart oriented in the right direction requires some heavy lifting. There's that amazing passage in Jeremiah 32, 33. I, I, uh, I remember years ago hearing the pastor in Rockford talk about this passage, Rockford, Illinois. It says in Jeremiah, I don't believe this is going to go up on the wall for you, but Jeremiah 32, 33 says, they turn their backs to me and not their faces. Do, do, do you get the impact of that? Whoever and whatever you have turned your back to, you have turned your heart from. And in other words, uh, uh, Jeremiah was saying, it's like this. You're going toward that thing or that that prize that God has not chosen for you and you're looking like this hey God I really love you God I you're, praise you Lord thank you Jesus thank you Jesus but your heart is going toward acquisition, possession, pride power, control uh, prestige pride lust, pleasure Leisure, that's what fills your heart. That's what pulls you away. You're being pulled by this magnet called your heart. But, but you come to church every week. Praise you, God. I, I, you sing the songs that are there to be sung, but your heart. You know, the most important prayer that you can pray today is God, fix my heart. David said, my heart is fixed. And when that's a, you know that's really there. My heart is fixed. Today I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to. I don't believe you can do this by yourself. I believe you need a heart doctor. You need a heart doctor, and Jesus is a heart doctor. He sent the Holy Spirit to live within you and to 
rearrange your heart and to fix it and make it what he wants. I, 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 I said a minute ago, this requires heavy lifting, and it does. It's going to require effort on your part. But you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. And there's some of you here right now, is when it comes to your heart, you're stuck. You're stuck in, you're stuck in resentment and bitterness. You're stuck in, in, in some lustful obsession that you can't stop wanting. Your mind says no, but your heart says yes. I want it, I want it, I want it. You're, you're stuck in some uh, desire for control of a situation. And, and, and maybe you're just stuck in desire for controlling all situations. You're just stuck in a need to control everything you get around. And you ruin every relationship because your heart is, your heart is so moved toward, toward control. And here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to say, God, I'll go take care of this. I'll take care of this and then I'll, I'll come back to you. No, that's not grace. No, I want you to invite Jesus Christ to do surgery on your heart. I want you... See, the Bible says from the abundance of heart the mouth speaketh. So how can you correct this problem of the heart? You start, with, you start by getting honest with your lips. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You start by telling God the truth about what your heart is really stuck on. You start by telling God, isn't that, if you think about that, think about that for a minute. That is, that is an amazing miracle that the church often overlooks, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. He doesn't stop there, though, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, Christ, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to counseling, by the way. I'm, I'm pro-counseling. But for some of you here this morning, months and years of counseling is not going to fix this problem. But a few seconds of being honest with God and confessing your sin to God, God will supernatural. Well, I don't know about supernatural, you say. Well, what about the stars and the planets? And, and what about the resurrection? This whole Christian faith is based on, if you, if you want to be crass about it, it's based on a magic man rising from the dead. So if that could happen, maybe, just maybe, God could fix your heart. Just maybe God could fix your heart. And orient your heart the way, in a way that will be healthy and will be good for you and be good for everybody around you. There, there, there's some people, there's some people pro probably here this morning that your, your spouse is just, would, would, would shout glory if you would get your heart fixed. Your children would be so grateful. They would be so blessed if you would get your heart fixed. You, your parents would be so amazed. Your, your employer would be so happy if you got your heart fixed. Well, Jesus is here right now to do that for you. Let's pray. Father, change my heart. Fix my heart. God, search my heart and help me to know those ways that I am oriented towards something that is not of you and not to your glory and not to my good or the good of my family or the good of my friends or the good of my church or the good of my community or even the good of my nation. Oh God, search my heart and know me and reveal yourself to me. And God, form my heart. Form my heart, God. 
as I read this week, Lord, some people just come to church to perform, not to be formed. But God, I'm here today, and I pray that everyone else in this room is here today not to perform, but to be formed by your grace and your love and your mercy. Not in a spirit of condemnation, but in a beautiful, wonderful spirit of love and conviction that will raise us to a new level of living and, and, and cause us to live the life that we're really called to live and fulfill the purpose that we're really called to fulfill. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. What a great, what a great word from the pastor. Um, just the idea that our hearts inform our actions, and that God can change our hearts like that. Um, God can change your heart tomorrow when you're thinking about the sermon that you heard today. Maybe if it didn't happen today, it can happen in a moment. So God, thank you so much. God, thank you so much for giving us all the ability to have a new heart, a new mind, and I pray that we would live that out. God, 